I read a comic the other day that uh, uh, someone posted on Facebook. Uh, those of you who are sitting in the front, you might be able to see that, uh, but it doesn't matter. I will uh, tell you what, what, what's in there. Right? In the comic, you've got one character saying, I hate the term Good Friday. And the other character says, why? And his friend answered, my Lord was hanged on a tree that day. My Lord was hanged on a tree that day. Well, you can understand, isn't it? As uh, Tim mentioned earlier, why people are often puzzled when we call the fact that the day that Jesus died is Good Friday. Because what happened there isn't very good, is it? Or is it? Well, tonight we're looking at an account of, of Jesus' death written by one of his disciples named John. We will see the events of Jesus' death, the meaning of Jesus' death, and then we will discover not, not only is it good, but it's a matter of utmost importance to each and every one of us here tonight. Well, let's first look at the events of Jesus' death. And let me give you some background. Jesus had been a marked man for quite some time. The Jewish leaders had been determined to have Jesus killed. They plotted against him. Uh, they arranged for one of his closest friends to betray him. And finally, they captured him. The high priest had, had attempted to question him. But they actually already knew what they wanted. They had already decided way beforehand that politically, it would be better if Jesus was dead. It was expedient, they had said, that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. And so they took Jesus, they handed him over to the Roman governor, Pilate, and they pressed him to take action. Pilate wasn't keen. He said, you've got your own law, you go and try him by that. But they said, no, we can't, because what he's done deserves the death penalty. And you're the only one who can hand it out. This man claimed to be God's king. You see, God, throughout the Old Testament, had promised to send a king one day who would rule the world and rescue his people. And many people, including Jesus himself, believed him to be that king. And so Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus explained to him that, yes, he is God's king, but his kingdom is not of this world. Pontius Pilate wanted to dismiss the case. He knew Jesus had done nothing deserving of death, but, but the Jewish leaders used manipulation and pressured him. They said Jesus was committing treason because Caesar, the Roman emperor, was their only king. And they demanded his crucifixion. If Pilate refused to do it, they said, that means he's not a friend of Caesar either. And so Pilate caves in under pressure. He absconds his responsibility to uphold justice. He covers his back and pronounces the death sentence on Jesus. He delivers 
him over to them to be crucified. And now we pick up the story on, on page four of our handouts. They, they took Jesus, you see, in sentence number 17 or verse 17, bearing his own cross to the place of the skull, Golgotha. And there, verse 18, they crucified him with two others, one on each side, put him up on that cross. Crucifixion is, is actually a really, really, really bad way to die. Some of you might have seen the Passion of the Christ. Well, if you did, then you know what I mean. It was so cruel that, that Roman law didn't allow it to be inflicted on Roman citizens, but it's good enough for conquered people. And so Jesus, like thousands before him, was pinned to a wooden cross by nails piercing his, his wrists and his feet and left up there to die a slow and painful death. Actually, his crucifixion was not only mentioned in the Bible, but also in other historical literature of that time as well. Uh, the Roman historian Tacitus, who, no friend of Christianity, he described Christianity as a deadly superstition. He records this in the Annals of Imperial Rome. Christus, from whom the name Christians had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, in Judea. Another historian at the time, called Josephus, this time a Jewish historian, said, Pilate, on hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, condemned him to be crucified. But once Pilate had agreed to crucify Jesus, the Jewish leaders don't have any ammunition against him now to use, like Caesar. They've already played their card. And so Pilate knows that they've manipulated him. Now he's going to try and humiliate them. And so in verse 19, he writes an inscription and puts it on the cross. Inscription on the cross of a crucified criminal is there to show what, is, what, what they've done wrong that makes them deserve to be crucified. And what was Jesus' crime? Well, verse 19, it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now, you can see Pilate's being sarcastic to the Jews, isn't he? Right? He's trying to poke fun at them for having a king that is so weak, and, and they know it. And so they protest in verse 21. They say, don't write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. They don't want to be humiliated like that. But this time, Pilate stands firm. He says in verse 22, I have written what I have written. For you see, behind all this, behind all the evil and culpable conniving, the wickedness of the Jewish leaders, and behind the culpable weakness and then the sarcasm of Pilate, God was still at work. So that when Jesus hung on the cross, the sign above his head announced the great truth of why he was there. In three languages, verse 20, in Aramaic, in Latin, in Greek, for the whole world to see and understand, Jesus is the King of the Jews. The one whom God had been promising from way, way back. The one Israel had been waiting for for so long. 
the king who would come and save and rule his people, who would bring justice to the nations, who will bring in the kingdom of God, the kingdom who the kingdom that, that will last forever. But this king reigns not from a royal throne, but from a cross. A crucified king. A weak king. How could how could this be the promised king? Well, as we continue, we read about something else that was happening while Jesus was dying. In verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they take his garment, they divide it up into four pieces, one, one each. They also take his tunic, which is like the undergarment, and the tunic was a special one. It was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said, oh, let's, let's not tear it. Oh, it would be a bit of a, a bit of pity to tear it. Why don't we throw, cast lots? We gamble a little bit, see who gets it. So they say, don't tear it, cast lots to see whose it shall be. But you know, the same time as the soldiers were sharing out his clothes and gambling for his seamless robe, in the same time and in the same events, they were doing these, these evil things. God was fulfilling prophecy. And so verse 24, across the page, continues. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The part of scripture that is being quoted here is Psalm 22, which we read earlier. It's a psalm of David. And David was an ancestor of Jesus who lived about a thousand years before him. He was the great Old Testament king, the, the one who most clearly pointed forward to that promised king, the ultimate king whom God would send. And yet this psalm, as we read it just now, is a, the psalm of an abandoned one. Remember how it started? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the psalm goes on in the voice of one who suffers, who is scorned and despised, who is mocked and insulted, whose, whose strength is dried up, whose tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth in, in God-forsaken thirst, whose hands and feet are, are pierced by evil men, who suffers the shame of people gloating over his naked body as, as others throw lots for his clothes. Could the suffering Jesus be that promised king of the kingdom? Well, look at the psalm. It's a psalm of David, the king. And it points prophetically to, to someone who does suffer. And so contrary to popular thinking, in God's book, suffering and death do go together with kingship. God's king is, is not like other kings. His kingdom is not of this world. He's the king who suffers. Now there's more to Psalm 22, a twist if you like in the poem, but we'll come to that later. For now we see Jesus strung up on a cross between two thieves and 
We see that he's God's king. We don't yet know what he's doing there. But in the midst of the suffering and his pain, he, he sees his mother. And she, he, he knows what she's going through seeing him up there. He also knows that soon he will return to the Father and, and Mary can't presume on special treatment in that relationship. She, she would find her joy in, in being his disciple, his follower. And, and so in love and concern, he finds a son for her in, her place, in his place. And so he says to the disciple whom, G, he, G, the disciple whom he loved, probably John himself in, in verse 26, Oh, he says to her first in verse 26, Woman, behold your son. And he says to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Isn't that interesting? There is Jesus, actually we shall see, performing the greatest act in human history. And he's making sure that Someone looks after his mom. He still obeys his heavenly father. Doesn't avoid the cross because he knows it's going to break his mother's heart. But he makes sure that she's loved and cared for. Great example, isn't it? For all of us with living parents. And so there's the crucified king reigning from the cross suffering the indignity of pain and crucifixion and yet still showing love and being thoughtful. And time passes as he hangs there. We don't know how long. We know it must have been terrible, terrible agony. Every breath coming at the cost of the, the agony of lifting himself up against the nails. But, but worse, the spiritual agony of what was going on. What was going on behind the scenes, which we'll come to in a moment. But after what must have seemed like an eternity to him, Jesus' task was complete. And he was ready to die. And so in verse 28, it says that he now knew that all was finished. He said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And they took some sour wine, they put it on a sponge and pick it up to him, to his mouth, and once he's received it, in verse 30, he says, it is finished. It is finished. And then he bows his head. Notice he doesn't say, I am finished. It, the Greek word that it comes from is denotes the, the kind of thing that you're finishing a task. It's, it's not a cry of defeat. It's, it's a cry of victory. The king has done his job. Now, we still don't know what that job is. But whatever it is, he's done it. And so now he cries out, it is finished. And then he bows his head and gives up his spirit. No one takes his life from him. He he actually lays it down of his own accord. He gives up his spirit. He obeys the Father. He dies, and it's all according to plan.
Well, those are the events of Jesus' death, but what was that work that he finished? What was going on when Jesus was hung on the cross? What was that thirst? Is it anything more than just simple dehydration? And what does the death of Jesus mean for us in 2016? Well, as we read on, the Holy Spirit, through John, draws our attention to to two more important things. Firstly, in spite of his death and in spite of the intention of the authorities, none of Jesus' bones are broken. And secondly, the side of Jesus is pierced and blood and water flow out. Now, let's think about this carefully because if we, if we actually understand the significance of these things, then, then we will actually understand the meaning of Jesus' death and, and why it's so important for each of us today. So, let's think about that. First of all, Jesus' bones. We will read on in a moment how none of them were broken. None of them were broken. And you think, well, that's, that doesn't really mean very much, does it? I mean, lots of people die without broken bones. And yet John very deliberately goes to great lengths to single out the fact that Jesus' bones were not broken. Now, look, look how he records it uh, in, in verse 31 onwards. He says, it was a day of preparation so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath is a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that that might be taken away. That is, w- when they come along and they smash their legs to break it, then the person can't keep on going up and breathing, uh, and it makes them die faster. So they, they want to do that. So the soldiers came in verse 32 and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs. He's kind of like making a big deal of it, isn't it? Well, if you go down to verse 36, you'll see the reason. It says, These things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Now, this idea of bones not broken happens two or three times in the Old Testament Scriptures. And the most important one has got to do with the Passover. What's the Passover? The Passover was a yearly Jewish festival which God commanded His people to start keeping about 1,500 years before Jesus. At that time, God had rescued His people from, well, He was in the process of rescuing His people from slavery in Egypt. And as part of saving them, He brought judgment upon the Egyptians. And He arranged for every single firstborn male in each home in Egypt to die. But he also told his people, the Israelites, in each of their homes to slaughter a lamb instead. And he told each Israelite family to to slaughter the lamb or to share with a neighbor. And before they roast and eat the lamb, they could take some of the blood and they're going to put it on their doorposts of the house where they stayed. And when the Lord would come to, to bring his judgment upon the Egyptians, he would see the blood on the doorposts and he would pass over the homes where his people lived. And that's exactly what happened. God's judgment fell upon the Egyptians. Death was everywhere among God's enemies. But in the midst of that judgment, He saved His people. And the only death in their homes was the death of a lamb. A lamb died instead of a person when God came in judgment to rescue His people. 
But unless they believed God and did what He said, unless they trusted His Word, unless they went and sacrificed a lamb and sheltered under its blood, then they would have suffered the same fate as the Egyptians when God came in judgment. And God told the people of Israel to remember this event by celebrating the Passover every year. And as they did that, they will remember how God had saved His people from slavery in Egypt by this act of judgment. They would remember how when the judgment fell on God's enemies, God, God's people were saved because of the substitutionary death of a lamb. And so He told them each year, at the time of the Passover, each family is to slaughter and eat a lamb. If can't afford, two families share, never mind. But there was something very special about the way they should kill it and eat it. Something that would be very puzzling as to why. Because until Jesus died, there seemed to be no significance to it. They were to slaughter it and cook it and eat it in such a way that none of its bones would be broken. You see the significance of John's statement now. He's telling us that Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's been telling us this in lots of different ways, actually, throughout this part of John's gospel. But here it is again. Back near the beginning of this gospel, this account of Jesus' life, a guy called John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now, at the end of the story, the Lamb is slaughtered for the sins of the world. You see, friends, the Passover what was a remembrance of God's great act of rescue of His people from Egypt. But that rescue itself was a, was a pointer, a shadow of an even bigger rescue that was to come. For the day will come when God comes in judgment, not just on Egypt, but upon the whole world. And on that day, then the judgment on Egypt will feel like just a slap on the wrist, really, because every human being will be called to account. Everyone will experience His wrath. And it's not to say we don't deserve that judgment. We do, because all of us have sinned. All of us have rebelled against our Creator. And we deserve His punishment on the day He comes to judge the world. But Jesus Christ, the Passover Lamb, was sacrificed once and for all to save you and to save me from the just judgment of God. By dying for us on the cross, Jesus took our place under God's judgment. He took our sin, our guilt, our punishment. He took our hell for us. When He cries, I thirst, He's, he's suffering the ultimate thirst, that, that longing for God in a way that would not be satisfied because He died there for us as our representative. He died there instead of us as our substitute. One man did indeed die for all the people. And because Jesus died, 
God's people, the ones who trust Him, will be saved on that day when God comes and partake in eternal glory. We can know God and find the end of our thirst, the, the ultimate satisfaction of eternal relationship with Him. His unbroken bones point to the fact that Jesus is the Passover Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The second thing that John really wants us to know is that Jesus' side was pierced. Look again what he says at verse 34. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows he's telling the truth that you may believe. Now, the fact that blood and water came out incidentally shows beyond the shadow of doubt that Jesus really was dead, but that's, that's not John's point as he witnesses it. I, instead, he's explaining this phenomena again by taking us back to the Old Testament. He says down in verse 37, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And that's a quote from the prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, God speaks to his people many years before the coming of Christ, and in a funny way, he seems to be talking about himself and his king at the same time. He, talks, so he says, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. And then a couple of verses later, he says this, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And John is telling us here that this prophecy was fulfilled on Good Friday. Jesus, who is simultaneously God and God's King, was pierced. And the fountain opened up to cleanse us from, from sin and uncleanness. John saw blood and water coming from Jesus' side. That is no accident. That's not just an unusual medical phenomenon. It is a pointer, a sign that's telling the significance of what is happening. You see, blood and water in the Jewish temple were used for atonement and purification. Blood was shed in sacrifice. Water was used to wash and to purify. But now that Jesus has died, we don't need to go to a temple anymore to be purified, to be made right with God. Throughout John's gospel, he's been showing that Jesus is the true temple. There is the place where we meet God. And now from Him, from His side, come blood and water, symbols of sacrificial death and cleansing. Because from Him, the one who was pierced for our transgressions, comes the true cleansing from sin and uncleanness. Zechariah's fountain is Jesus Himself the cleansing fountain who can wash us clean from sin and impurity. 
And friends, that fountain is still flowing today. Or to drop the metaphorical language, that cleansing and forgiveness that Jesus died is, is available to you and I today. Jesus can take away each one of our sins, every last one of them. He can remove the wrong that we have done. He can wash us clean and make us pure and holy before the living God. And remember how he wondered what, what he meant when he said, it is finished? What was the job that he was doing? Well, friends, the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, surely that is his finished work. He has taken our sins once and for all, dealt with them thoroughly. In the death of Jesus, the sin of God's people is completely dealt with. God's judgment for sin is completely exhausted. The Passover lamb is sacrificed for us. The fountain of cleansing and forgiveness is open to us. The death of Jesus means that we can be completely forgiven no matter what we've done, and we can be friends with God once more. And through all of that, God the Father is glorified. For He is shown to be the wise and just and loving God that He is who is willing to pay this terrible price for us. So remember the comic I talked about at the beginning of the sermon? Well, let me show you the rest of the comic. If you can't see, that's okay. I'll tell you what it says. The first character has said that he hates the term Good Friday because he says, my Lord was hanged on a tree that day. But the second character says this to him. If you were going to be hanged on that day and he volunteered to take your place, how would you feel? Good, he says. Have a nice day. Good Friday is good because our King willingly and lovingly died to save us. But that is not the end of the story. Remember how we were wondering before, how can this king reign if he's to be killed on the cross? And remember how I said there's a twist in Psalm 22, that, that psalm that was being fulfilled that Good Friday? Well, if you remember when you read it just now, halfway through, the psalm changes. It started off with the king crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it ends in worship and praise, for the psalm predicted that the abandoned one would be heard. The one whose hands and feet were pierced would, would be rescued. The forsaken one would be restored. And all the ends of the earth would remember this and turn to God. And God would rule over the nations. And generation upon generation would tell about what God has done. And His righteousness will be declared to, to a people yet unborn. And friends, the king died, yes. The king was buried, yes. But the king came alive again. He rose victorious over sin and death. He had to because that is what the Scripture foretold. And that is what John is anticipating when he shows us the fulfillment of Psalm 22 in the action of the soldiers. And so the one we saw hanging on the cross, bleeding and naked, suffering for your sins and mine, is now the living king not only of the Jews, but of all the nations. He is God's King. 
And so we've seen tonight that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the cleansing fountain. Jesus is the crucified king who will eventually rise again. That's the meaning of his death. But my friends, knowing these things as, as facts is not enough, is it? Remember, the Israelites, they were only saved from God's judgment if they took the blood of the Passover lamb and applied it to their doorposts. A fountain can only cleanse you if you wash in it. And a king who is not your friend but your enemy if you're still in rebellion against him. And it's like that for us as well. We need God's Spirit to apply Jesus' death to our life. We need to rely on the death of Jesus as our substitute. We need to personally shelter under His blood. We need to personally be cleansed by His sacrificial death. We need to personally submit to Him as our King. Oh, so let me end this, this talk tonight by, by asking you where you are in all this. Do you trust in Jesus? You rely on Him and Him alone to save you from your sin? Do you know Him as your King who rules your life? I know that many of you here will say a joyful yes Jesus is my crucified, risen King, and I happily live my life under His rule. Jesus is my Passover lamb, my shelter under His blood. I rely totally on Him to save me on that last day from God's judgment. Jesus is my temple, the place I meet God. He's that cleansing fountain from which, through which my sins are washed away. Yes. But in a crowd this size, there will be some for whom this is not yet true. And if that's you, then listen. Come into His kingdom. Shelter under Jesus' blood. Allow Jesus to wash your sins away. Having this is a gift that God gives. It's a gift. And you receive it by faith, that is by trusting Jesus. Rely on Him and His death alone and nothing else to save you from God's wrath and to wash away your sin. Believe that He is your risen Lord, your King, and trust your life to Him. And trust your eternity entirely into His hands. And you will be saved and cleansed. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. That is why today is Good Friday. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you gave your Son, the Lord Jesus, 
to be the Passover lamb who was slaughtered in our place.